Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 17th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is This Old Heart of Mine and Troponin Testing. And our guest skeptics are Dr. James Vandenberg. James has a master's degree in clinical investigation from Washington University in St. Louis and is currently the chief resident at Detroit Receiving Hospital. Welcome to the SGM, James. Thanks for having me, Ken. I must say, you look marvelous. I'm very aware of how marvelous <clears throat> I look. And also, we have Dr. Andrew Hung, and Andy does... Andy does have a ma doesn't have a master's degree in clinical investigation. Did you write this yourself? Um, but at least he completed medical school. <laughs> and is also a chief at Sinai Grace Hospital. He works hard so his cat, Zizu, can have a good life. Welcome, Andy. Thank you for having me. James, uh, before we move forward, you wanted to uh, share a little fun fact with the audience. Uh, what was that fun fact? I absolutely can. So my intern year, I had dreams of becoming a competitive eater. It was my dream to beat the Fall Lucky Challenge in Detroit, Michigan. For your reference, Ken, that is eating three pounds of noodles, two pounds of beef, and chugging a gallon of broth. I, I uh, trained every day for about a year, but on the day of the challenge, I was gloriously defeated by a legendary local eater and, at the time, my senior resident, Dr. Sarah Zhang. She is still on the winner's wall to this day. I, however, sadly developed horrible distension in my stomach and pretty much complete heart failure. I wish you could have seen my EJs, Ken. They were popping that night. Ooh, well, <laughs> I think that was a bit of a too much information. <laughs> Now I'm nervous about asking Andy anything about his cat. I will say that I have uh, had this cat for about five years now, and ever since I got my cat, I've uh, gone overseas and picked up a single cat shirt for every country I've been to. Fascinating, Andy. Fascinating. I think that's a cue to move on. So, as the audience may, uh, who are listening to this may realize, we are recording this live from Detroit. So, we are going to have some audience participation, and I will bring you in on how we're going to do it when the moments arrive. But first, we like to start each show off with a case. So, who's got the case? I got the case, Ken. So... As the resident, you have just finished seeing a 78-year-old male who has been brought in by his family over the holidays. The triage nurse has put the reason for the visit as multiple complaints. Despite spending 30 minutes in the room, you still are not sure exactly why the patient is here. Your attending says that if you take a good geriatric history, that you can always determine what's going on. However, 15 minutes later, your attending leaves the room defeated. The patient's complaints are just so nonspecific. The attending ends up ordering the geriatrogram, ticking off every blood test on the form, including the troponin. You turn to the attending and ask, do you really think this could be acute coronary syndrome? Thank you. Absolutely. Patients 65 years of age and older account for about 15% of emergency department visits in the United States. Their presentations are often complicated and they present with non-specific symptoms. And there are often obscuring comorbidities, conditions, polypharmacy, and cognitive and functional impairments that make it difficult to make a diagnosis. Nonspecific symptoms in the elderly usually yields a broad differential. 
and there are no recommended diagnostic algorithms. This can lead to extensive testing. ACS is usually amongst this differential as cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in this population. Additionally, the elderly population with ACS more commonly present without chest pain compared to younger patients. While cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of mortality and morbidity in the elderly, the frequency of ACS amongst this population presenting with nonspecific symptoms is unknown. So, what's the clinical question? What is the frequency of ACS in elderly patients presenting to the ED with nonspecific complaints? And what is the utility of troponin testing in this population? And here we reference Wang et al. Uh, the troponin testing and coronary syndrome in geriatric patients with nonspecific complaints. Are we overtesting AEM January 2020? What's the PICO? Let's run through the population, the intervention, the comparison, and the outcome. What was the population they were interested in? Uh, patients aged 65 and older presenting to the emergency department with nonspecific chief complaints who underwent troponin testing. And nonspecific was designed a priori as including weak or weakness, dizzy or dizziness, fatigue, lethargy. You know these words, right? Altered mental level, uh, altered mental status, lightheadedness, medical problems, requested examination, failure to thrive, or multiple complaints as the chief complaint. Who did they exclude? If they had a focal chief complaint or fever of at least 38 degrees at triage. Okay, so if they're febrile, they're not going to be in this because something else is probably going on. And if they had something focal to tell you, oh, you know, like a stroke, something like that. All right, what was the investigation? Uh, troponin testing. What did they compare it to? None. Okay, let's go through the outcomes. Guess how many outcomes there were? Thank you. All right, let's go through those uh, five outcomes. Uh, so number one, the proportion of patients with nonspecific complaints who underwent troponin testing. The second thing was the proportion of patients who had an elevated troponin. And third, the proportion of patients with ACS at the index visit or within 30 days. And then the fourth thing was the utility of troponin testing to diagnose or exclude ACS. And fifth, the frequency of other causes of troponin elevation in this population. All right, so those are the five things. That's the PICO. Now we're going to bring in the lead author because this is a live episode of the SGEM Hop, which means we have the lead author on the show. We have Dr. Alfred Wang, and he is an emergency medicine physician at Indiana University in Indianapolis. With the help of a dedicated team of physician peers and a very patient mentor, Dr. Wang was able to complete this research project. Welcome to the SGEM, Dr. Wang. Happy to be here. What got you interested in doing troponin testing in geriatric populations? It all started intern year. Um, we saw a bunch of these patients during my time in the department. I never I really understood why we were ordering troponins in all these patients. So I asked my mentor, Are the, is there any utility in ordering a troponin in these patients? And we did a lit search and there was nothing on it. And there you go. All right. What were the author's conclusions? What did your team come up with? So our conclusions were, while consideration of ACS is prudent in selected elderly patients with nonspecific complaints, ACS was rare and no patients received reperfusion therapy. Given the false positive rate in our study, our results may not support routine troponin testing for ACS in this population. I like how you left in some wiggle room in there. May or may not. Anytime you see may, you can substitute it with may not. And anytime you see may not, you could shorten that to may. 
Great. Well, there are quality checklists for chart reviews, and there's a quality checklist uh, for ED studies that was published by Gilbert et al. in Annals back in 1996. And it had eight items, and this was this list was updated and expanded by my EBM mentor, Dr. Andrew Worster, who started the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine program to include 12 items. We're not going to go through those 12 items because the answer to every one of those was yes, except for one. Yeah, the authors of this retrospective chart review did a great job, and 11 out of 12 answers were yes. The only no was that they did not have a management plan described for missing data in this population or publication. So a chart review is a type of observational study, and we do have an SGEM quality checklist for observational studies. So let's run through those 11 questions. And my favorite number is five, as the audience is aware, but my second favorite number is 11. Do you guys know why 11? Does anybody know why 11 would be my second favorite number? Yes? because you get to turn it up one louder. That's right, when you, when, you, when you got your amp there and you're just you know, shredding it, and then your amp only goes up to 10? Oh, this one goes to 11. What movie is that from? This is Spinal Tap, right. Anyways, let's go through those 11. First thing, um, first quality checklist. Uh, did they address a clearly focused question? Absolutely they did, Ken. It focused both on ACS in an older population and the utility of troponin testing in a cohort of ED patients presenting with nonspecific symptoms. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer the question? Well, yes. For, for their single academic center, it would have been more robust study had they done a multi-centered prospective cohort study. However, the methodologic quality of their study was very, very good. Otherwise, it was appropriate. The third question was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way. Yes, it was. Overall recruitment was acceptable, and data included all patients presenting within their date range after rigorous, Alfred, very rigorous, review of the EMR. However, issues included possible limitations of the EMR in capturing all patients with nonspecific complaints, difficulty in retrospectively determining a nonspecific complaint, using two independent reviewers for only a portion of the study, and whether those reviewers were adequately blinded. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Unsure here. Uh, exposure was difficult to define based on their primary objective, observing rate of ACS. Technically, the exposure of the presence of nonspecific symptoms in the elderly. They did accurately define this criteria, however. Given the limitations of retrospective review, there is inherent bias in this approach. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. The outcome was accurately measured, but with several caveats. I don't think we need to run through all those several caveats. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Uh, that's also unsure. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? I gotta be a contrarian here, Ken, and lock in a hard no. Follow-up could have been improved. For instance, they did not include any review of local coroner or death reports, and they did not make an effort to contact patients who may have lacked a 30-day follow-up. They only relied on review of the EMR. How precise were the results? Precision was poor. The 95% confidence interval for sensitivity was 48 to 100%. Specificity was better at 77 to 85%, but we must remember that measures were correlated, right, James? That's right, Andy. And therefore, the poor sensitivity is also a reflection of specificity. Had they picked a different cutoff for troponin, then they could have improved the sensitivity at a cost to specificity. Jimmy, do you believe the results? Kenny, that's an emphatic yes. 
All my best friends growing up still call me Kenny. I love that. Are we best friends now? No. Oh. <laughs> uh, can the results be applied to the local population? Uh, that's also unsure. This was a single center study at an urban level one trauma tertiary referral center. So the generalizability is limited to this setting and their local practice patterns. And the 11th question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Uh, we're unsure on that one. As Dr. Wang alluded to, we're not aware of any other previous studies looking at this issue. So we're going to go through the key results now. They identified just over 1,000 potential eligible patients, and after excluding those patients who had specific complaints listed and those with documented fever, they were left with just about 600 patients. Of those, 69% had troponins ordered. So two-thirds of the patients had troponin orders. The average age of the cohort was 78 years of age, so these are older individuals. 58% were female, and 75%, three-quarters, were admitted to hospital. The most common chief complaints were altered mental status at 43%, weakness and fatigue at a third, and dizziness at just over 21%. But here are those five things that we had as the outcomes. Let's run through those. Number one, the proportion of patients with nonspecific complaints who underwent troponin testing was 412 out of 594 at about 69%. The proportion of patients who had an elevated troponin in the ED was 13%. Another 30 patients had an elevated troponin at some point during their hospital stay. Key result number three, the proportion of patients with ACS at the index visit or within 30 days was 1.2%. That was five out of 412. Notably, all cases occurred during the index admission. So 1%. 1%. 1%. 5%. The utility of troponin testing to diagnose or exclude ACS, that was the fourth point. Looking at the first troponin in the ED, so if you ordered a troponin and it was ordered in the ED, it was 80% sensitive and 88% specific. Remember, sensitivity is true positives, specificity is true negatives. That gives you a negative predictive value of 99.7%. Doesn't that sound fabulous? Wow, because negative predictive value is based on prevalence. And if the disease isn't prevalent, the negative predictive value can look fantastic. All right, considering all the troponins and the sensitivity, it was at 100%, though, if you considered all of them. The specificity was 81%, and the negative predictive value, again, was 100%. The positive predictive value, 6%. The yield was low. And yeah, number five, the frequency of our causes of troponin elevation in this population. There was a long list of non-ACS causes of troponin elevation, which was included in the show notes. The top three were dehydration, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation. All right, now this is the real meaty part of the program where we get to talk nerdy with the lead author. So we're gonna ask Dr. Wang 10 questions to get a better understanding of the publication and each of us is going to alternate. Talk nerdy point number one, defining nonspecific. The definition of nonspecific symptoms is pragmatic while at the same time being problematic. For instance, chief complaints like dizziness were considered nonspecific. But what if the patient had supporting focalized neurologic complaints? 
Additionally, some physicians like to list the chief complaints as the leading sentence a patient provides. This is problematic if a patient initially cites a nonspecific complaint, but then goes on to describe symptoms suggestive of ACS. Now, the researchers did perform a review of the provider notes to look for this discrepancy, but conversely, what about focal chief complaints such as shortness of breath? This can certainly be construed as nonspecific based on the patient's provided clinical history. But due to the paper's inclusion criteria, if any triage nurse or physician labeled a patient's chief complaint as focal, they would have been excluded. Definitely, this, could, this is a limitation to our study. So we could have included a patient who actually presented with a focal chief complaint, but if the provider listed in the HPI a nonspecific complaint as a primary complaint, we would have included this patient. On the flip side, we could have excluded a patient who presented to the triage nurse with a focal chief complaint, but actually had a nonspecific complaint. This is just a limitation to a retrospective, retrospective chart review that we really couldn't avoid. I'm gonna jump off on the chief complaint part there because not all chief complaints are created equally. And so you could have this definition of nonspecific chief complaint, but that could be altered mental status and failure to thrive. And I would imagine that the yield testing on someone who comes in with an altered mental state might be different than someone who's just failing to thrive. Would there have been a benefit in sort of trying to tease that out and considering those chief complaints separately? We kind of looked into this in some detail. So table one, if you guys have the paper pulled up, kind of looks into this. So of the patients who had an elevated troponin, so 82 of those patients, the majority of them had a triage complaint of altered mental status. Furthermore, two of the five patients that we determined to have ACS also had an initial triage complaint of altered mental status. We didn't look into this into further detail, but it seems like some triage complaints are indeed higher yield. And to talk a bit about the charting itself, um, the topic about retrospective charting, you excluded patients who had nonspecific complaints at triage, but had a focal complaint listed in the ED physician note. The ED physician note might have been written after the troponin result had been known. In the presence of a positive troponin, focal complaints might have been more emphasized, despite being originally nonspecific. Definitely. Um, again, another limitation for a retrospective chart review. We assume that most providers started the HPI soon after seeing a patient, but this could have not always been true, right? If a shift is super busy and you're slammed, you're unable to finish the note sometimes until after the shift. So if the provider retrospectively charted and knew the troponin was elevated, they could have charted the primary chief complaint as a focal chief complaint, and therefore we would have excluded the patient. All right, uh, the definition of ACS. You did a good job prospectively defining what would count as an ACS basis or what ACS based on objective measures. However, neither decision to take a patient for revascularization nor stress testing are perfectly associated with ACS. The result is possible overcall of patients with ACS. On the other hand, based on the information provided, I don't think we can be 100% certain that the five patients diagnosed with ACS truly had ACS. Absolutely. We did use the AHA definition as our guideline definition, but there's no consensus definition of ACS in this population. I have the distinguished honor of your favorite number, Ken, nerdy point number five. Use of a single troponin. 
Even before the use of high-sensitivity troponins, troponin testing was never binary. There have always been a large number of patients in a gray area where clinician judgment or repeat testing is required. In your study, you judged the value of troponin testing based on a single test. Do you think the troponin testing would have been more accurate if multiple values or if the physician's interpretation had been considered? I'm not sure if more troponins would have made the diagnosis of ACS more accurate. I don't know the number, but a decent number of our patients actually got a two-set troponin because our EMR system is designed that it's easy for us to click a button and automatically order a two-set troponin. Again, I don't know the number of patients who got a single-set troponin versus a two-set troponin, but I think the more important part of your question is actually the physician interpretation part. I think a good next question in our study is figuring out why providers order troponins in the first place. Are they ordering it for risk stratification? Are they ordering for prognostic purposes? Are they ordering just to admit the patient? Or are they actually ordering it for concern for ACS? We don't know from the study, but I think this will be a very interesting question to follow up with. Well, we're going to stay on the idea of troponin for question number six. And the study utilized two different troponin assays a troponin I point of care whole blood assay with a cutoff of 0.08 based on the 99th percentile, was primarily used in the ED. Inpatient troponin testing, though, was performed with a troponin I fourth generation. That cutoff was 0.04, also based on the 99th percentile. So it's unclear whether these two measurements were of equal accuracy. Yep, this was just an idiosyncrasy of our institution at that time. We had a different assay for the ED and a different assay for the inpatient team. It's changed now, but this was just something we really couldn't avoid. And to stick with uh, troponin, uh, the rise and fall of troponins, you described 30 patients who had a negative troponin in ED and a positive troponin later during their hospital stay. Part of the definition of the MI is a rise and fall in troponin, so these patients seem to fit that definition. What criteria was used to exclude ACS in these patients despite the objective evidence of cardiac ischemia? So we did have, as our definition of ACS, a troponin rise and fall, but we did specify a troponin rise and fall and a pattern typical of ACS without an obvious alternative cause. So most of these 30 patients had a very small troponin leak, such as 0 0.07, 0 0.08, and had an obvious alternative cause, such as sepsis, hypertensive emergency, a PE. So these patients were not included as having ACS. The eighth point is about selection bias, and rather than looking at all patients with nonspecific complaints, you only looked at the patients who the clinician decided to send a troponin, and you don't know why the clinician sent the troponin. Presumably, as compared to the patients with the same chief complaint, without a troponin draw, these are higher risk patients because somebody must have made the decision to say, yeah, we better get a troponin on this patient. Yep. So we assume providers ordered a troponin in patients that they deemed higher risk for ACS. If we had included every patient with a nonspecific complaint, including those who did not get a troponin ordered, could have diluted our ACS rate even further. All right, moving on to point number nine, back to positive predictive values. Although the sensitivity and specificity numbers look reasonably good, there were more than 10 false positive for every one true positive. That results in a positive predictive value of only about 6 to 7%. How'd you feel about that, Alfred? That's actually probably the most important number from our study. Um, it demonstrates that the yield for troponin testing for ACS was low in our population, and there was a very high false positive rate. 
The 10th question is about death. There were 32 deaths among uh, the patients in these cohorts over the 30-day follow-up period as compared to only five diagnosed with ACS. Considering the inaccuracy in determining the cause of death, might some of the patients actually have been missed ACSs? And if so, how would that have altered your results? I guess we can never know exactly how a patient died without a gold standard biopsy. We assume the treating clinician's diagnosis of death was the cause of death. There were four patients who died at home in 30-day follow-up. Two of those patients were in their mid-90s. One had severe Parkinson's. Another one was in, in their mid-80s with end-stage renal disease. And the last one was in her mid-70s with squamous cell cancer and AFib. So all of these patients had multiple com comorbidities and could have died for a multitude of reasons. If we assume all four of these patients died from ACS, it would have increased our ACS rate from 1% to about 2%. And I'm not sure if this would have changed our study's conclusions. Well, those are the 10 formal questions, but I know James earlier said, why don't we have an 11th question? So the 11th question will be, is there anything else you want to tell the audience about your study? Yeah, I think... This may be a controversial topic, um, but I think rather than ordering a troponin in every patient who presents to the ED with a nonspecific complaint, we should weigh the risks, including hospitalization and procedures, against the potential of benefit, and most importantly, likelihood of ACS prior to us ordering a troponin. Well, now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. So we agree that although ACS can have an atypical presentations in elderly patients, the results don't support routine troponin testing for all patients with nonspecific complaints. And James, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? Yes, I can. In this retrospective study of elderly patients presenting to the emergency department with nonspecific complaints, the diagnosis of ACS was rare and troponin testing had limited value. And how about a case resolution? Okay, so the resolution of the case. Despite the resident's concerns, you decided to order a troponin anyway, and you were relieved you did when it comes back positive. However, three weeks later, when reviewing the patient's course, you noticed that he had a significant bleed during his angiogram, and the cardiologist ultimately determined that the troponin was a false positive. And how are you going to take this information then and apply it clinically? So, the yield of troponin testing was low in this single-center retrospective cohort study. However, the troponin testing may have led physicians to change the chief complaint from something nonspecific to something focal, ultimately eliminating patients from this trial. It is therefore difficult to recommend any practice changes based solely on these results. Now, normally I have one of our guest skeptics uh, tell us what they would tell the patient, but because of their extensive uh, clinical experience, I'm going to take that one. It's, it's massively extensive. <laughs> Three years extensive. <laughs> so, Here's what, what we would suggest uh, telling the patient. Based on the symptoms you're describing to me, it's very unclear what is causing your symptoms, but I think that a heart attack is very unlikely. We could send some blood tests to check on your heart, but with your symptoms, the tests are wrong more often than they're right. So we might end up having to do even more tests. The other option would be to observe you over the next day and only add heart tests if we figure out what is going on or you develop new symptoms. 
Last week's Keener Contest winner was Dr. Cindy Bitter from St. Louis, Missouri. She knew that Achieve 2 was the name of the randomized control trial using the same protocol, same authors, but different doses of Ubrojapant, and was published recently in JAMA. What's the Keener Contest question for this episode? Uh, the Keener Contest this week is, uh, what is the meaning of the word Michigan? Uh, now, don't shout it out, okay? Because if you know the answer, you have to send me an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think about this episode and getting troponins on elderly patients with nonspecific complaints? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Alfred and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog the best Social media feedback will be published on AEM. And also don't forget those who subscribe to AEM can head over to the homepage and get CME credits for this podcast in the article, and we'll put the process in the show notes. Wanted to thank you, Alfred, for coming on the SGM and doing a live recording in front of this wonderful Detroit audience. And further, discussing your hot off-the-press publication. Thanks for inviting me, James. No problem. <laughs> Thank you, James and Andy, for stepping up. Uh, you, uh, you stepped in for our regular host, Dr. Justin Morgenstern, who helped uh, with the critical appraisal. So uh, thanks to Justin when he hears this, but thank you guys for doing this with us. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. It was our pleasure. And to finish off the show, we always have the SGM tagline, and this is where I get the audience to read the SGM tagline. So we're going to do on the count of three as loud as you can. One, two, three. <laughs>